I don't think any of us would argue that we live in a world that is not exactly what God intended it to be. We, we live in a world where we often feel uncomfortable, where we feel like the values that are important to us are not important. We're engaged in what many people call culture wars, where we're fighting to see what the culture is going to end up looking like and where it's going to go. And the question that comes to us in the midst of that is, what do we do? What's our role in that? How do we respond? Where do we go? What do we say? Eugene Peterson says that typically there are two, our responses fall into one of two categories. Either we sink into a quicksand of paranoia and live in panic and do everything we can to keep evil at a distance, go into a shell, or we join forces with demagogues and moralists and defenders of purity and we vilify and crusade, mount crusades and define ourselves by what we're against and live lives of negative spirituality. And most of the public persona of the church tends to fall into one of those two categories. But Paul has been telling us throughout this letter that there is a different way. He's been, he's been hinting at it as he goes along, but now as he comes to the end, it is full front and focus of everything that he says. It's a plan, it's a strategy that I think goes against the grain of how we tend to think and how the culture tells us things get done. It is a strategy that rejects the culture's uh, idea of how to, how to accomplish things in the world, how to change the culture, and instead is very countercultural and counterintuitive because it's the strategy of Christ. It kind of seems crazy when you think about it that Paul says, I want you to fight. I want you to put on armor in this battle that we're fighting in the world. And the armor I want you to use and the weapons I want you to use are truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the scriptures. And what do you think? Those weapons really don't seem to measure up to the weapons that the world is using against us. It sort of feels like sometimes that we're armed with slingshots and everybody else has tanks. You know, we've got a cap gun and they've got automatic weapons. Or we're flying in a Sopwith Camel and they're in F-22 jet fighters. Which I think is one of the reasons why we have a hard time with the strategy. I think that's how Gideon felt. You know, he's, God says, all right, I want you to defeat the Midianites who have been holding Israel slavery. And so he gets 32,000 men, which honestly isn't all that many compared to the Midianite army. But it's a good number of people. And God says, that's way too many guys to win this battle. What kind of a strategy is that? So he sends 22,000 home. And the Lord says, 10,000, still too many. Send home 9,700 of them. And with 300 men armed with lanterns and trumpets, they go into battle. But when the dust clears, the Midianites are fleeing for their lives and Israel has their nation back. Now, the strategy that Paul's talking about here and the armor he wants us to put on doesn't mean that God is unconcerned about the world. Actually, he's more concerned than we are. It's just that he knows better than we do 
that the change we're hoping for in this world is not going to come through politics. It's not really about power. It's not about how we measure success. It's about life transformation. And that transformation begins with us, not the world outside of us. I'm convinced that God would rather have us have us be people who love and not accomplish the things in society that we think we should than to accomplish the things in society we think we should by any other strategy than what Christ has. Because the moment we stop using the strategy of Christ, we have already lost. So when Christians make exaggerated or disrespectful or vitriolic comments about the president or a member of Congress or or anyone who might be in favor of something we're against, we are skewing God's reputation just as much as the behavior we're condemning. When we engage in this kind of behavior, whether it's from a distance or face-to-face, we are revealing an appalling lack of trust that God knows what he's doing and that God's way of doing it is best. I have this sense that the evangelical church is subtly saying, you know, Lord, this world is a mess. And um, we're a little concerned that your way of fixing it isn't really working. It's a little too slow. It's a little too naive. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But we've discovered that there's a better strategy because we've discovered the big always beats small. The strong always beats weak. We've discovered that what you need is a political action group. And and those are pretty successful, so we're going to do what they do. And we're going to boycott and picket and and we're going to threaten and we're going to create smear campaigns. And Because sometimes you have to exaggerate the truth to get people on board with you. You have to create an atmosphere of fear in order to get people to see that things need to be different. And we've discovered that when you're connected to power, things get done even if it sometimes means compromising our values. Lord, I know this is a little different than what you had planned, but we like it. And if you gave it a chance, I think you'd like it too. I I think that's the subtle message that we're sending to God. Now, Christians don't avoid politics. In fact, engaging in God's strategy probably will move us further into politics, but we just do it with a different spirit. We do it with a different strategy. We do it in a way that is countercultural to what everyone else is doing. Instead of operating in the political realm from a position of power and strength, we operate in the political realm from a position of weakness and humility, just like Jesus. I mean, when do you ever see Jesus crushing someone in order to accomplish salvation for us? When do we see Christ grabbing for power to bring to the world what it needs? When do we see Christ pushing people around, pushing people to the, to the periphery so God can be proclaimed? And if the strategy really worked, then Christ would have used it. But the goal of Christ's battle plan is not to set up a theocracy that forces everyone to, to follow God. But rather, it is to so live like Christ that people are drawn to God through his seeing him in us. The post-Soviet fighting between the Mujahideen, the rise of the Taliban, the terrorist camps, all of that resulted in thousands of Afghans fleeing to Pakistan. 
His people ended up in refugee camps in which the conditions were abominable. The children would run around barefoot, and it didn't matter if it was intense heat or intense cold. They had no shoes. And the Christian organization heard about this and decided they wanted to do something about it. And so they bought thousands of sandals for these children. But they also decided that instead of just giving the sandals to the children, they wanted to wash their feet first. And so the children came one by one and they washed their feet and they treated the sores on their feet and they gave them the sandals and they said a silent prayer for them. A few months later, a primary school teacher in the area asked her children who the best Muslims were. And a little girl put up her hand and she said, the, uh, the kafirs, the disbelievers. Well, when the teacher sort of recovered from a cardiac arrest, she said, Why? And the little girl said, because the Majahadeen killed my father, but the kafirs washed my feet. What do you think that little girl is going to think about Jesus and Christians? We need to consider how we can be advocates for people who have no voice. And it's important for us to do that. But we understand that the world will not be changed primarily through politics or legislation or call to morality or blue laws or a better work ethic or or a um, well-reasoned argument. But only when the church begins to look and act like Jesus. Which happens only as we embrace, completely embrace the strategy of Christ that seems strange to us and to so many people. Not too long ago, I saw, long ago, I saw a commercial for DirecTV. And uh, this family is, people are sitting around in a lawyer's office and he's reading the will of this uh, really rich man. You know, I mean, he's got tons of money and he owns islands and planes and all this stuff. And as he's reading the will, it's evident that he has left all of his fortune to other people than the family. And they're all sitting there steaming. You can see it. They are so upset. And then the lawyer says, and finally, to my only son, Chauncey, I leave my collection of, I leave my direct TV and its vast collection of hundreds of movies and shows. And the guy stares and all of a sudden this smile comes across his face and he begins jumping around the room going, yes, yes, thank you, thank you. This is awesome. And the family is just staring at him like, you're an idiot. What is wrong with you? Don't you know what just happened here? When I saw that commercial, I thought to myself, I think that's how we sometimes feel in the church. That's how people make us feel. Sometimes the church makes us feel that way. When you embrace the strategy of Christ, you look naive. You look like you don't really understand how the world operates. You don't really get it. And that's not just a message that comes from the culture around us. That's a message the church sends us at times as well. Our struggle to to embrace Christ's strategy, we're convinced, the problem is we're convinced that the enemy is our culture. It's society, it's the people who hate us or disagree with us or see things differently than we do. And so we fight against them and we're railing against them and that's where our attack goes. But Paul says, no, 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 our enemy are the principalities and the powers of darkness. Our enemy is not the culture. Our enemy is, is the evil one and the powers of darkness that he controls. 
The evil one whose goal is separation and hate and resentment and ultimately death and destruction. Paul says the problem is spiritual. And if the problem is spiritual, then the solution is spiritual. Which is why prayer is so vital to the strategy of Christ. Paul talks about prayer more than he does any of the other weapons. It's like the capstone of the whole arsenal. Prayer is so significant because only in prayer, in honest, open, selfless, surrendered prayer, prayer that doesn't end when we say amen, but goes with us as we live our lives, only in that kind of prayer we get connected to the heart of God and we see things with the eyes of God. That's why we're doing these prayer vigils. Because we want to present an opportunity for all of us to surrender ourselves to the Spirit so that we can see the world the way Christ does. To sit in that chair and to sense the Holy Spirit coming upon us is to ask God to give us new eyes and new ears and a new attitude and a new heart about what exactly is going on in this world. In prayer, we're declaring that nothing is more important than connecting ourselves with God. And nothing's more significant to this spiritual struggle than opening our hearts to God. And nothing's more powerful than giving God every opportunity to speak into our lives so that we can go forth bearing the armor of God. Paul's not saying that we then pray and do nothing. Rather, the prayers that please God are the ones that lead us into the world to live what we prayed. There's a sign in the, in the wall of the prayer room. It's the last thing you'll see as you walk out. And it says, may God bless you as you go forth to live your prayers. And that's the goal. That by connecting ourselves with God through prayer, using that part of the armor, it changes us. And we live differently. And we see this world differently. And we embrace more openly the strategy of Christ to have an influence in this world for Christ. Prayer is the only way to win the battle for the kingdom of God. Because only in prayer are we connecting ourselves to the one who has all the power. And I mean all the power. See, sometimes we think we have some power. That if the evil one comes against us with some little stuff, we can handle that. Because, you know, we've got some power here. And we think it's about us and what we can do. We can't do anything without the power of Christ. But we're, in prayer, we're tapping into the power of the one who has already won the battle. He's already defeated the evil one. It's done. And Tim Gomba says, it's not our task to defeat the powers. God's already defeated them in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The church is called to inhabit the victory that God's already accomplished. And this is why the only weapons we use are the weapons that God uses when he has won the battle. But Paul understands that this armor is most effective, that it has power for us when we stand together. In verse 14, Paul talks about standing firm. And I have an image in my mind not of one person standing against an army, but an army of God's people standing ready to do battle with the principalities and the powers. And in our hands 
are not the artillery of anger and violence and retribution and power and success, but faithfulness and peace and love and humility and surrender and sacrifice. See, when we ignore or minimize the importance of the church, we lose the power of our spiritual armor. I'm not sure we really believe that because we've been told in subtle ways and in overt ways that the strongest Christians are the ones who can stand alone. Those are the people who have the power of God in their lives. They don't need anybody else. They stand by themselves. That's a lie. Paul's been telling us that over and over and over again. The people who stand strong for God, the people who are spiritually mature, understand that they can only stand together. Only when the power of God is joined, when we're joined together in his power and his grace, not when we're trying to stand by ourselves. When Jesus is facing the cross, he doesn't push his disciples away. He says, come, pray with me. But we've become so enamored and mesmerized by our culture that we think the most profound need for transformation can take place in us individually But he can't. It's us together. And the need for the transformation is really not the culture. The most profound need for transformation is in you and me. It's in God's people, the church. We're the problem because we keep pushing aside the strategy of Christ, thinking that our strategy is better than his. And I know why we do that. It's because his strategy, honestly, is a lot harder and it sometimes doesn't make sense. And our strategy makes sense to us. It's what everybody else is doing. So let's use it. And no wonder we aren't making a difference in the world. No wonder people say the church has nothing to offer me that anybody else does. Why would I care about that? But when we engage ourselves with Christ, when we put on his armor, Something happens. The power of God comes into us because we've opened ourselves to God and things begin to change. I think the greatest compliment someone could pay us as a congregation is not that we offer great worship services or we know the Bible or we're we're concerned about social justice, as important as those things are, but that we're people who pray. And they know that because they see us living out our prayers in our daily lives. Pete Gregg said, God is mobilizing an army, but it's a broken army that marches on its knees. As our commander-in-chief inspects the ranks of his wounded, weeping soldiers, he speaks to you and he speaks to me, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. On a Monday evening in 1982, a small group of Lutherans gathered at St. Nikolai Church and began to pray. Now, we wouldn't think that much about that. We can gather and pray anytime we want to. But this was East Germany. It was during the height of communism. And for them to come together to pray was a real risk. The churches had been, many of them, burned to the ground. Others had been used, been emptied and used for other purposes. And Christians in East Germany faced a tough road. And just coming together to pray 
was a risky venture. But they had to, and they came together and they prayed. They prayed for peace and for justice and for transformation of what was going on in their country. And every Monday they came and they prayed. Week after week, month after month, and even year after year, and nothing seemed to be any different. And after a few years of praying like this, others began to hear what they were doing and decided that if this little band of people could come together and pray, people who really weren't, didn't look all that impressive and didn't have any influence, then maybe they ought to try it too. And so they began to pray in their churches. And in cities all throughout East Germany, people began to come together and they began to pray. And the crowds began to grow. And every Monday when people came to pray, the churches were packed with people. And all of a sudden, the winds of change began to blow. And things looked different. And this once docile people began to rise up and to speak. And after a while, the the communist regime began to crumble. And eventually, so did the Berlin Wall. That for 28 years stood as the symbol of the Iron Curtain. And it all began when a few people decided to come together and to pray. One communist leader admitted later to a journalist, we were ready for every eventuality, but we were not prepared for people to pray. I wonder what would happen in this nation, in this world, if we stopped fighting with each other and we Stop vilifying those who oppose us. Stop using the strategy that everybody else is using and started praying and loving and reaching out and going the second mile. And not because it would necessarily make life easier for us, but because we have embraced the strategy of Christ to see something miraculous take place in us and in us. And in this world. As I read through the scriptures. I realize there is no plan B. There is no other strategy. This is it. This has been God's plan. From the beginning of time. That his people. Would represent him in this world. In a spirit of love. And humility. And peace. And grace. And truth. And righteousness. We're simply asked to believe that this is the right plan, that it's the best plan, and to trust our lives that God's plan is going to do and accomplish what only God can do. Please pray with me. Perhaps as we've been thinking about this passage, God has put something in your mind about a part of life where you realize you've really bought into a strategy that is not of Christ. As we pray silently, confess that to God and hear his words of forgiveness.
Father, as we have confessed to you, we thank you for your words of pardon to us. Give us new eyes, new hearts. Give us courage to embrace your strategy. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.